Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll continue our study uh, uh, through that passage. Realize that we've been in this passage for quite a long time. I, I didn't go back and count or anything, but it feels like we've been here for far too long, if that's possible, in a particular passage of Scripture. So I am endeavoring this morning to finish out uh, up to verse 14, and God help me, I will do that, and we'll move on uh, to the latter part of chapter 1, and hopefully soon move on to chapter 2. Chapter 1, verse 9, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. A few years ago, the U.S. Army commissioned a study to find out which job in the military is the most stressful, most demanding, most difficult. Which one of their uh, soldiers are under the most pressure. Um, after uh, a study that lasted for several years, they were quite shocked by what they had found. They found that the stress levels of this particular job in the military was not only highest in all armed forces, it was highest in all jobs in the world, according to their study. More than uh, special forces, more than colonels and generals, more than those who are firefighters and or police officers, this job was the most stressful. They found that uh, Army recruiters or military recruiters have the highest stress levels of all occupations in all of the military and in all jobs. Head and shoulders more. Higher st stress levels than anybody. Uh, there's many component, components, reasons why uh, it's the high pressure work. Um, they're not with their unit. They're separated from um, they're, they're fellow soldiers, they're grouped in two or three, a lot of them are in rural towns, and um, they have to um, have the pressure of every month recruiting two soldiers uh, to the military, um, especially in wartime. In peacetime, being a recruiter is not that difficult, because... You're calling them to, with all the perks and benefits that comes with joining the military, uh, the GI Bill, you know, 
all the benefits in terms of seeing the world and the, the call to adventure and uh, shooting guns at targets that are not moving and so forth. It, it, it becomes almost, um, it sells itself when it's during peacetime. But during wartime, especially now when there are, we're in the midst of two wars, it's very difficult because uh, these men and women know that if they enlist, very likely they will see battle firsthand or they will be deployed overseas to either Iraq or Afghanistan. What makes it the most difficult is that most of these recruiters have seen battle firsthand. Um, they have done tours in either Iraq or Afghanistan. They've seen uh, and experienced the heat of battle and all the atrocities that go along with war. And so that makes it extremely difficult for them to sit across the table before a 19-year-old, 20-year-old uh, young man or young, young woman and call them to, um, to join the military. Um, I say that so that we truly appreciate what Paul is doing here in verse 8 through 12. Paul is doing a very difficult thing. These aren't He's just flowing from his mouth. These aren't just like, he's just not riding off the cuff and just speaking out of hand. He's using choice words. And there's great weight in his heart as he penned uh, these sentences and, and put them together. He is not only calling Timothy to not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, to not be ashamed of Paul, Christ's prisoner. But he's also enlisting him in the midst of uh, intense war, intense battle, enlisting and calling him to join him in suffering for the gospel. Paul loved Timothy as his son in the faith. So while in prison, I would venture to guess, in his flesh, he wanted to tell Timothy, oh, take it easy. You know, don't take risks. You know, just pick your spots. You know, watch your back. And just be cautious and careful in how you uh, believe the gospel and live it out and proclaim it. Because we're living in dangerous times. Nero is hell-bent on persecuting and killing Christians. Timothy, you watch yourself. I would venture to guess is a part of his heart where he wants to do that. But he doesn't do anything close to that. He, he calls Timothy out and he says, join me in suffering for the gospel. He's calling his son in the faith to join him in suffering for the Lord. He does what is so very difficult and it is beautiful as we discover what is motivating Paul, what is driving Paul to do this, and what he is telling Timothy, what must drive him, uh, motivate him, the impulses of his heart, that's to constrain him to do these very difficult things. We'll get to that. The heart of this passage, verses 9 through 12 later. Verses 9 through 12 is the, the engine. It's the fuel. It's the power, the motivational power behind these 
sandwiched by these commands. But I want to end with that section. So far, we looked at the three commands. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Do not be ashamed of me. Suffer with me for the gospel. We'll look at the final two commands of this passage, and then we'll close out with the motivation. Verse 13, here's the fourth command found here. Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is the third imperative verb found, a fourth imperative verb found in this passage. Paul is commanding Timothy, don't make it up as you go. You don't get any extra credit for creativity. Your call, the mandate given to you, the commission given to me that I pass on to you, is to follow Christ as I have followed the Lord. As I follow Christ, you follow me. I've set a pattern in terms of sound doctrine. In terms of the truth that I proclaimed in public, it's a pattern for you. And you put tracing paper over, and that's you, and you're to follow that example. Follow that pattern as faithfully as you can. Not calling you to follow issues of style. I like, you know, clothing is an issue today, I guess, right? Not dressed like Paul or sing songs like Paul or impersonate Paul. He's not, he's not creating a cult of personality here. He's not a megalomaniac. He's not self-obsessed where he wants to make duplicates of himself. It's not, he's not preaching himself, but Christ. So what he's calling Timothy to do is imitate and follow these truths, these doctrines. Be faithful to pass them on to the next generation of believers. So, Paul has set a great example in terms of his life, in terms of his doctrine. So you look at Paul, he's in prison. So he's saying, follow me. As I suffer for Christ, you need to watch your life. Christian life is to be lived, not just studied, not just understood, not just heard. The Christian life is lived out, so suffer with me. But also watch your doctrine. Make sure that you're passing on what I've passed on to you. We see this repeated again in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 2. The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. He's, he's looking at uh, three generations. He's looking at Timothy, four generations. And looking at the men that Timothy's training, and the men and women that Timothy's trainees will be teaching others. It's all contingent upon Timothy's faithfulness to follow the pattern of sound doctrine, healthy, life-giving, faith-building truths that Paul modeled for him. Called to not just guard, but to faithfully pass it on. Entrust it to the next generation. That's Timothy's responsibility to remember what he had heard and pass it down 
and not to deviate from it, not to compromise, not to cater to the winds of people's opinions or desires, but to be steadfast, immovable, and having this fixed faith, following that pattern and passing it on without without compromise, without tainting it, without changing it. And here we are, 2009, and it is overwhelming for us to consider that this has happened for 2,000 years of church history. For 2,000 years. God has providentially raised up God-fearing men in every generation, many who have paid the ultimate price that they might pass on these precious truths to the next generation. They would rather die than compromise on the Word of God. They would rather die than compromise the Gospel. This is a legacy that has been passed down to us. Every God-fearing woman or man of God here, we feel that weight, do we not? of that stewardship, of these precious doctrines passed down to us. We have felt the heat of the flame burning in our hearts as we consider the price that has been paid to not only produce this gospel, God gave His Son, Son came to the earth, became a slave, died a criminal's death to give us the gospel, but not only that, it has required a sacrifice and even the life of Countless men and women so that it might be passed down to us, untainted, uncompromised. We look at church history and I'm reminded of someone like Augustine. He was saved from a life of deep immorality, of just involvement in heinous sins. And through the book of Romans, he discovered the truth of God's sovereignty over man. He wrote later that I tried hard to maintain the free choice of the human will. But the grace of God prevailed. He lived to proclaim God's truth, courageously fought error from all sources. At the end of his life, he counted his battles. And at the end of his life, he listed over 80 heresies that he has fought against. I don't think I know eight heresies, but he studied 80 and fought them his whole life. He passed that down to a noteworthy man who received his, his truths were uh, Calvin and Luther. Luther was an Augustinian monk. Calvin quoted Augustine more than any other church father. We see this uh, being passed down throughout church history. Uh, You go to Germany and you see pictures of Luther or statues of Luther and you will see near him uh, a picture or a small statue of a swan nearby. Uh, A swan at his feet. Why is this? The reason goes back a century before Luther. Jan Hus a Czech pastor. He died in 1415, about a hundred years before Luther nailed his 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door. He was 
He had been born to a peasant family. He was preaching in the common language instead of Latin. He translated the New Testament into the Czech language and he spoke out against the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. He proclaimed that the Bible is the final authority and all men must submit to it, including the Pope. That no man has greater authority than the Scriptures. He rejected the Catholic Church's traditions, their council decrees, the practice of selling indulgences. He declared that only God could forgive sin. And for the church, that the audacity to forgive sin was blasphemous. So in 1412, a papal bull was issued against Jan Hus and his followers. Anyone, anyone could kill the, form, the reformer on sight. Anyone who gave food and shelter, Jan Hus would suffer the same fate. When three of his followers were found, they were captured and beheaded. On December 1414, he was captured. March 1415, he was was burned alive at the stake. He was given one last chance to recant. He would not. He prayed aloud before the burning fire. He said, cried out, prayed, Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endured this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. He was burned with his books. Tradition says that in his cell just before his death, he wrote this, Today you are burning a goose. Jan Hus, that word, Czech word is goose. Uh, it means goose. However, a hundred years from now, you will be able to hear a swan sing. And you will not burn it. You will have to listen to it. Luther boldly saw himself as a fulfillment of Jan Hus's words in 1531. Luther said, Jan Hus prophesied of me when he rolled from his prison in Bohemia. He had burned a goose, but after a hundred years they will hear a swan sing. And him they will have to tolerate. And so it shall continue if it please God. And it has continued. Luther didn't invent the gospel. He didn't create it. He discovered it in the scriptures. And it was passed down to him by men like Janus. And so it has continued to this day, generation after generation, Godly men have stood for the Word of God without compromise and they passed it on to the next generation of believers and the great voices of grace continue to sing on today. All because of what Paul did to Timothy here in verse 8, verse 9. I personally sense that story in my own life. Um, Godly men, godly pastors have invested in me, their life and teaching. I I sense the weight of this stewardship as I serve here at Cornerstone. One of my highlights during my three-month sabbatical was to go to a master's seminary and preach at chapel. And I was talking to someone just during the fellowship time about that. And um, by the grace of God... I was thankful that I could minister there uh, with a sense of uh, a clear conscience. That I could preach there and save my heart. 
I graduated here 10 years ago. And I haven't deviated from the pattern of sound words that you men have entrusted to me. I did not go and uh, deny God's sovereignty and, 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 and go towards open theism. I did not go out and so intimidated by uh, the winds of doctrine swirling in America that I gave in to uh, denying unconditional election or total depravity. I still hold to the sufficiency of the scriptures. I believe that we have everything we need for salvation and sanctification in the gospel. I was so thankful that I, by God's grace thus far, I'm able to, uh, I'm still tracing the sound words that they gave me many years ago. And our challenge here and our responsibility is to pass it down to the next generation of believers here. A crucial challenge for us. Um, I think we're now in our third generation. Um, and I rejoice. Um, I don't know if it's kind of weird to say this or not, but when you know God used me to um, share God's word with Bob and hand to him these scriptures. And when he preaches the word, it's faithful to the text. It's more, it's stronger than even me, right? It's more, more faithful, more uh, biblical, strong on the word of God. We see that in our pastors, in our flock shepherds, in our small group leaders. Last year, Dan came to us and said, we need to train younger men to study and preach the Word of God. So we had CBI course for 12 weeks, or we had 20, 30 some odd younger men of our church learn hermeneutics and homiletics and all those edicts, I don't know, right? All those things. And the final task was for them to uh, preach um, before um, Dan and Jason Dan asked me if I would come and sit in and hear these guys preach. And so unannounced, I showed up to hear uh, five of these guys preach. When they saw me, I know they told me they were nervous, they were scared. But I was scared as well. Because, <laughs> oh man, what if they come out and take out a little, you know, sort of magic trick and get out a hat with, you know, rabbits and so forth or do like pyrotechnics or. You know, try to tell jokes and it's not funny or <laughs> has nothing to do with the message. I mean, I was nervous for them. So, so thankful, so encouraged that each of them, um, they, they received these pattern of sound words. And they're doing the work of tracing as well. They're not trying to be creative, innovative, right? trying to uh, do something new or to be sensitive to the loss or to the culture, try to uh, share code God's word or the gospel in any way. Their agenda was our agenda. Stay with the text, preach the word, expositionally, passionately, proclaim God's truth. I was so encouraged because what Paul started here in First Second Timothy 1 is continuing on. 
by God's grace, the great voices of grace are still being sung in our midst. That's the fourth commandment command given to Timothy. The fifth is verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The imperative verb is guard it. Protect it. Hold fast. Guard the deposit. It is a banking term indicating a treasure that was entrusted for safekeeping. A sacred trust. What was entrusted to Timothy? Paul's meaning is clear. That Paul entrusted to Timothy the gospel of Christ and all the doctrines of the Christian faith. Paul considered himself as one entrusted by the, with the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 We speak as men approved by God, entrusted with the gospel. 1 Timothy 1.11 He entrusted to me the glorious gospel of the blessed God. And so, he has passed it down to Timothy. Verse 14 Guard this good deposit that was entrusted to you, that was deposited to you, guarded with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. It's calling Timothy to do four things. Not to uh, write it down and bury it, bury it in a, in the, on the ground and, uh, just, or put it in a safety deposit box or, or such. But Spiritually speaking, guarding the good deposit, guarding the gospel, guarding these doctrines means, first and foremost, to believe them. That it is our stewardship to not just know these doctrines, but to believe them. That's that's the work of God. John 6.29, the work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. John 20, 31, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The the Word of God is a means to an end. The Word of God is not the end. Knowledge of God is not the ultimate end. There are means to Christ, means to God, means to knowing God. And we accomplish that. That is made possible by our faith. By trusting, believing, by beholding, considering, holding tightly. That is the first responsibility of a steward. It's not just to carry, not just to know, but to believe it. And that requires daily diligence, daily hard work to fight pride, fight the legalist, uh, fight self-righteousness, fight moralism. Fight our, 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 ourselves, our inclination to worship ourselves, a daily work, to put aside all these things. Say, God has given me the gospel, and I'm not going to presume upon it. I'm going to believe it today. For all that's waiting for me, with all the responsibilities and the burdens and, and challenges that await me this day, my utmost stewardship 
is to believe the gospel and believe these doctrines. Secondly, as an overflow of faith, is to obey these doctrines, to submit our lives to them. Philippians 4, 9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. It is not a separate work. It is not, you know, one work is believe and one work is work or application. The application flows from faith. Because my, I believe, because of faith, from that produces the fruits of application, fruits of obedience. It's channeling the gospel so that I might put it into practice. The third work is twofold. Faithfully teach these doctrines. Pass it on to others. Acts 20.20 You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. Later on in chapter 4 verse 2 of this book, preach the word in season and out of season. Pass it on to others. The other flip side of that coin is protect this truth by refuting error. Titus 1.9 Encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This is what it means to guard a good deposit. It means to believe it, practice it, teach it, and protect it from error. Guard it against error. Guard it from error. So, Pretty simple. I think all of us here can understand the what of these five command, commands Paul gave to Timothy. Do not be ashamed of the gospel or of Paul. Join in suffering. Follow the pattern of sound words and guard a good deposit. Those are the what's. Last Sunday, we studied how we are to do this. Not in our own strength. Not according to our own like self-will, our own uh, trusting in ourselves. How do we do this? We're to do it by the power of God. Romans one sixteen, which is the gospel. We do it depending on the gospel, not on ourselves. In verses eight through twelve, we find the why. Why we are to do this. The motivation that is to fuel our obedience. The reason behind our obedience. And this is so important. So I'm, you know, I, you, know you guys, you guys, you guys know me. I, I'm, I'm, this is just who I am. I speak hyperbolically, right? I am very effusive in my statements, you know, whether it's, food or, or movies or sports or jokes. I am just kind of over-the-top kind of person. But this is not me being over-the-top. This is, uh, take it literally. Take James Sheen out of the picture and pretend Bob is speaking. Bob is not hyperbolic. Bob is very just even keel. Right? But this is Bob speaking. Take it, that, take it that way. Motivation is everything. I, I'm not exaggerating here. Motivation is everything. Motivation is determinative. Right. What you do, anybody can do that. A non-Christian can obey these five commandments. Commands. 
But a Christian is set apart by, by the motivation, by the why. By the why. Um, you know, one of the books, there are several books that I love to read, all by the same author, Phil Watterson. They're in my library. A few times a year I take it out and I ponder and meditate upon its truths and encourages my heart. Calvin and Hobbes, right? So if you haven't discovered Calvin and Hobbes, you're missing out. So, you know, the, Calvin and Hobbes, they have these deep, Theological, philosophical, you know, like moral, ethical, just you know, back and forth while they're riding on that red wagon down a hill, right? And it's just so profound, the things they say. And then the conclusion is what an eight-year-old boy would conclude. Well, you know, once a year, you know, he doesn't write or draw anymore, but once a year, the Christmas theme would come up. And, you know, Calvin's like, oh, man, I got to do a lot of makeup work because I've been such a bad boy. I'm not getting any presents this Christmas. And all of a sudden, he wants to be a good boy, good friend. He's, he gives Susie Durkins flowers and, you know, clears her path when she's walking and he's nice to his dad and so forth. One, one uh, comic strip, he asks this question. He says, I'm trying to be good. Because it's Christmas and I want gifts from Santa. But if I'm trying to be good for, for selfish motivations, is that really being good? Is that good? So he's asking a very existential question there. Right? <laughs> is it good to do something good for selfish reasons? And the answer is no, that's not good. That's, that's sinful. That's evil. Right? That's corruption. Right? And that's what Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Pharisees. You're saying, look, the Pharisees, they're praying. He's not contrasting people who don't pray and people who pray, or you should pray. He's contrasting people who pray and people who pray. These people pray, but why are they praying? What's the motivation? It's what they get in return. Reward from men. When you pray, pray in secret. These people give, but what is their motivation? It's to applause of men. Right? Pride. Self-righteousness. Moral superiority. It's their opportunity to look down on people. When you give, give in secret. The contrast is not in doing and not doing. The contrast is you're both doing it. But the motivation behind the act is determinative. Um, Christ did this throughout his uh, ministry. Uh, in Matthew 22, a lawyer came to him, and as a lawyer would, you know, they're always talking semantics and parsing words and you know, just trying to find a loophole. And they're asking Christ, what is the greatest commandment in the Old Testament? Out of the thousands of commandments, and out of the ten commandments found in Exodus 20, what is the greatest? Is it, you shall have no other gods before me? And, he, and our Lord's response tells us there aren't ten commandments. We left out two more important commandments. And we know what they are. The most important commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. These two are the motivating commandments 
that motivates us to not have any other gods before God, not to blaspheme His name, to keep the Sabbath, to honor our parents, not lie, cheat, steal, envy, or covetous, or, or commit adultery. Doing the Ten Commandments without the first two is hypocrisy, it's corruption, it's evil, it's pride, it's religion. It's exactly what God is against. What God, the heart of God is, do all these things because you love me with all your heart, soul, and mind. And honor your parents because you love them. Don't lie to your neighbor because you love them. Don't steal from them because you love them. Motivation is determinative. It's everything. And so, that's what Paul is doing here. In the the heart, in in the middle of this passage, in this section, he, he has given us the commandments, and here he gives us why. What what is to fuel us, to drive us? What is to give us these affections, these impulses? And it must not be all these other things where we can be driven to not be ashamed out of pride, suffer out of morality, or judging others. Or we could preach the gospel, preach sound doctrine out of pride given by self-worship. We can guard a good deposit because we're angry, judging others. Verse 9. Be fueled by the gospel who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works. Not because of our works. Five words that are so important. God saved us And God called us to a holy calling. So it's salvation and life ministry. He saved us. And He called us to live in a a holy manner in our lives and our ministry. Not because of our works. So you get an invitation for something. It's it's always because of works. right? You get invited to a wedding. It's because you know that person. You've done something to produce a relationship. You get invited to some kind of banquet at work, it's because you work at that company. You're not fired. Right? You get invited to some kind of honor. They want to bestow a prize or an award on you. You've done something. There's some achievement where you boast, look at me, I'm going to this banquet. And you are not because I've done something. Right? It's because of our, that's how we live in the world. But in terms of our salvation and in terms of our lives, in terms of our ministry, Absolutely not. It's not because of anything we have done. Not because of our works. And Paul understood this intellectually, but he understood this existentially, experimentally. Why? Because when did God call Paul? On the road to Damascus, Acts 9. There was nothing that would warrant God to call him to be his son. He was on the road going to a city in Damascus, to persecute and murder Christians after having just murdered Stephen, the first martyr. And so here he is, and he is called, he looks back, and he's I know for sure I wasn't called because I was the humble, godly, God-fearing you know, man, and 
I was seeking God. I want to serve Him. That's why He called me. He knew there was this like, light of righteousness, a light of humility, an island of, of goodness in my heart. And He responded to that. He knew, wow, I have nothing, I have nothing but just arrogance and, and hatred and, and, and vile, wicked evil in my heart to kill those who believed in Christ. And He called me, so I know He's even coming to the world. It's purely out of His own grace. His own purpose. Paul knows this. Do you know this? Do you know, do you believe that you are saved and called to a holy life not because of your works? Or are you deceived by, you know, you're a good student, good son, daughter. You're a, you grew up in the church. You, you, you like the other kids, you didn't ditch Sunday school, right? Those sinners, right? They would ditch Sunday school and go to the liquor store and play arcade games and use their offering money to buy potato chips. Man, evil. Not me. You brought your dollar. You know, you, you ironed it, right? It's all crisp dollar bill. And you looked at them and go, oh, you're evil. And you listened to your Sunday school teacher and you went home and told your mommy and dad everything, right? Maybe you wore a tie when you were third grade. <laughs> you went, you, you dressed up in Sunday school. You're the only one, right? You look back and you go, wow, I was a good person. So God, God saved me and called me because I was a good person. Do you see, uh, do you see what God sees? Uh, God sees them as filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rats. Why? Again, because of the motivation. You didn't iron that dollar bill because you love God. You didn't listen to your physical teachers because you, you love God, love the Bible, love the gospel. You didn't obey your parents because you love them. You were being like Calvin. You wanted Santa to like you and give you gifts. You loved all the pride that, that, that your pride that was fed by all these good works you did it for yourself and the gospel exposes that that you were doing all these right things but because the motivation was wrong they're like filthy rags on the side of God so do you know that do, so you are not willing to repent of these righteous deeds seeing them not as man sees seeing them as God sees and repent to the core the deeds weren't corrupt. Our parents would say, you are a good child. Our friends, you are a good friend. But for, for us, we know our hearts. We know it, the corruption that was fueling all these things. So we repent of all these quote-unquote righteous deeds. And of course, if you're living in sin, it's much easier. It's much easier if you're the younger son. You come back. I am unworthy to be your son. I'll be your slave. It's much easier. It's harder for the older brother. The gospel must be uh, the fuel that um, prompts us, that affects us to do these impossible things of not being ashamed and suffering and following the pattern and guarding the good deposit. If the gospel is our motivation, then you and I, we won't, we won't become cowards. Right? We won't lose heart. 
This is the key, brothers and sisters. This is the key that unlocks the, the door to the power of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 4.1, let me just read this to you. Paul said, Having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Because I received this ministry by God's mercy. It's not I received this mercy because I was such a good leader, good student, good communicator, godly man. If it was, you would lose heart. Because we we can't overcome sin. No way. We can't conquer sin. And to get the best of us out of pride. We will quit. We will burn out. We'll come to an end and we will run away from the cross. Or we think it's the cross, Christianity. But because we receive this ministry of this life by God's mercy, God's grace, Paul said, do not lose heart. The word here, lose heart, ekakumen means properly to turn out a coward to lose one's courage, to be faint-hearted, to faint in view of trial or difficulty. So if our motivation is, I am who I am and I do what I do in my life, as a pastor, worker, homemaker, father and mother, brother and sister, whatever roles we have, we view it, not because of my resume I'm doing this. Not because I'm adequate or I'm sufficient. No, you know what? I'm doing this because God called me undeservedly by grace. By mercy. I am not qualified to do any of this. I'm not qualified to be a Christian, to be a Christian husband or wife or father or mother, or a Christian worker or friend or minister. I am not. It's by grace. That empowers us where we face trial or we face suffering and we don't run away, we don't cower, we don't faint, we don't lose heart. And for me, that's one of the precious discoveries um, during my sabbatical. Um, You know, for years, if you've been around, you know me, um, I wanted to be a good you know, Christian, husband, father, friend, pastor. But it was hard because just life is so hard. Ministry, everything is so difficult. And I am so weak. I am such a sinner. I'm a coward, insecure coward. I want to run away. So I need help in my motivation. I need something to fuel me. So, I became a pragmatist. I'll take anything to motivate me to be a good Christian father, husband, pastor, so on and so on. I'll, do any, I'll use anything. Band of Brothers, that works, right? Oh, that episode on Bastogne where they're just cold and suffering. Wow, that, I think I watched that episode. It fuels me to endure a few more weeks, but it runs out. Okay, what's next? Oh, Cinderella Man, James Braddock, right? Wow, depression. Kids were hungry. You know, he diluted milk, gave it to them, and he fought for their children. Yeah, I gotta fight for my children, fight for my church. I gotta be the man. And then that runs out. And then go back to the 80s with Rocky, you know. 
If I go the distance, I won't be a bum. I can't win, but if I go 15 rounds against the champ, no one's gone, gone the distance, I won't be a bum. Right? I use that illustration. You know, that, that's me. Always runs out. And when challenges happen, I become a coward. My insecurity gets the best of me and I run. And during my sabbatical, I discovered what was right under my nose all these years. That the gospel is not just for my salvation. 2,000 years or 2,000 years ago. <laughs> I'm not that old. <laughs> gospel is not just for salvation like years ago. It's not just my salvation, sanctification, but it's also for my life. Also for me as a Christian, as a, as a father when I'm struggling with my children, as a husband when I'm struggling with selfishness, as a pastor when I'm overwhelmed with inadequacy, inability, insecurity, the gospel is more than sufficient for my motivation. In fact, it is so much more glorious, beautiful, so much more powerful than all those things that were fleeting. They were just passing. Right? They were like, like little candlelight compared to the huge sun, which is the gospel. Gospel. Limitless power to fuel us to obey these commands. Right? That's why Paul puts it Puts the gospel right in the beginning of his epistle and right in the middle of his commands. So that Paul, Timothy might never lose sight on this power that enables him to be an excellent minister of the gospel, serving after the Apostle Paul. May that be uh, what fuels us individually as a church. And I think you'll discover. Um, all, so many uh, precious sweet fruits that come from that. When we believe that not just our salvation, but our lives, it's by grace and not by works. It's not because of our works. We see uh, the fruits in Paul's life. Right? Uh, verse uh, 12. This is why he suffers. How was Paul... Was it his courage? Was he just, you know, like Dick Winters, right? Just this, this different kind of man who was just so brave and strong. He's able to suffer. No, it's not Paul. He was just a man just like you and I. That's the gospel that enabled him to suffer as he suffered. Not only that, he's not ashamed. They're treating him like a wicked criminal, the evildoer. They're trying to put on him false shame, false guilt. And in his heart, he senses no shame. Because in his heart, his dependence is on the gospel. It's by grace. He is what he is. And he has a humble confidence in the future. Because his motivation and his dependence is not on himself, but is on what Christ did on the cross. I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. It's not up to me. It is not my work. I'm not the critical person in the formula to guard this deposit. He is able. 
I know, I know who he is, and I know his ability. I know his power because of the promises that are given to me in the gospel of Christ. It produces this fruit of humble confidence towards the future. It's not confidence in self, but a humble, God-fearing confidence in Christ by the gospel of God. May we continue to uh, run to the gospel and eat the fruits that, that are produced by it. Let's pray. Oh, great, awesome, merciful, gracious Father. Abba, Father, we come to you as your children. And we are just so thankful for you giving us everything. You gave us your best. After you gave us your son, what more could you have given? After having given us your son, will you not graciously give us all things with him? And yet, our hearts are so restless. Our hearts are so deceitful. Our hearts are so proud. We look to other things. We go elsewhere. Rather than entering into your house and enjoying all that you have given to us by the cross and humbly receiving them and savoring them and glorifying you through it. Lord, would you call us home? Would you remind us of these basic cardinal truths and call us back to that humble place at the foot of the cross where we're more like uh, Mary than Martha we're more like the tax collector than the Pharisee in the synagogue where we're more like Peter and not like Judas Lord would you call us to the cross and our hearts be affected and flamed by His truth that it's not because of us that you did this. But your own grace, your own purpose, you have done all this. May we believe this daily and rejoice in light of the cross. In Jesus' name, Amen.